This is an irreverent podcast. Check out irreverent.fm for shows from all our friends. Blake Chastain. This episode features a conversation that I had just yesterday with Reverend Angela Denker, who wrote the book Red State Christians, which was initially published in 2019, but was re-released and updated just this past year. In this conversation, we talk about the midterm elections, we talk about the things that have changed in the United States since her book was initially released in 2019. I did speak with her earlier, um, when closer to when the book first came out. You can find that in the feed, and I will link to that episode in the show notes. We talk about her role as someone who works in a local parish in a rural area of Minnesota, as well as all the various different lenses that she brings to understanding what is happening and transpiring and why the midterms didn't shake out in this sort of red wave or red tsunami that a lot of people are predicting. Um, Predicting the future is a bit of a fool's errand, but we do try to consider what there is to learn from the fact that there was a pretty clear repudiation of a lot of extremism. That doesn't mean that this extremism will not be a threat, that people should not be weary or wary of these things, but rather... Well, maybe there is some hope to hold on to or to find in in the most recent midterm elections. So uh, this is, again, this was just recorded yesterday. It's only been lightly edited to sort of remove filler words and maybe improve um, some audio quality here and there. Um, but please bear that in mind. It's a little bit different than than most of the episodes that you find in this feed. Uh, but because of the newsworthiness of it, or rather at least the, the timeliness of it, um, I was hoping to just publish this as quickly as possible. We just spoke yesterday, and this is uh, being released today into the feed. So please um, have a listen. Let me know what you think about it on Substack. Uh, Twitter seems to be imploding. Um, so that may not be the best place to reach me or many other people. Uh moving forward, but I do publish a Substack publication that I've been keeping up for the last couple of years. You've heard me mention it here. It's called the Post Evangelical Post because all of my ideas begin as puns. So as a result, you can go over to postevangelicalpost.com, which is where you can find links to all the exvangelical episodes, as well as my writing, as well as my other podcast, Powers and Principalities. All of it is there at postevangelicalpost.com. You can subscribe for free. You can also upgrade to uh, a paid subscription at four, six, or eight dollars a month. I utilize Substack's coupon feature to do something similar to Patreon. All of those tiers give you the same benefits, which are uh, first and foremost ad-free podcast feeds, as well as some subscriber-only content that I publish on Substack from time to time, including short-form podcasts uh, called Pep Talk uh, and some other things. Um, I have lost, uh, just due to the sort of economic downturn that is affecting everyone, that does 
uh, of course, impact folks like myself as well. Um, so if you are able uh, and you appreciate this show, please go and subscribe over at postevangelicalpost.com. You can find all the links, again, at postevangelicalpost.com slash support. That's where you can find all the different ways you can support the show, including buying things from my my affiliate bookshop.org page, um, purchasing merch. All of that is there. You can follow me on Instagram and TikTok and even YouTube now at brchastain underscore. If you want to learn more about Christian nationalism, there's a really wonderful event being put on by Straight White American Jesus, a fellow irreverent media group podcast that is happening on November 18th at 7 p.m. Mountain Time. It is being held at the University of Denver, but it's also going to be recorded and broadcast virtually. It's going to be put on again by Straight White American Jesus from IMG. Uh, and you, if you want to register for that and get 25% off, head on over to bradonishi.com slash nationalism to register and use the code SWAG, S-W-A-G 25 for 25% off in person and virtual tickets. This is going to be a great panel, including Brad Onishi, Samuel Perry, Philip Gorski, Catherine Stewart, Larissa Hawkins, Jacqueline Hidalgo, Kiati Joshi, and Robert Jones. Some of those people you've actually heard on another podcast that I did in 2020 called Powers and Principalities. The first season of that show uh, is all about white evangelicalism and Christian nationalism. You can find that wherever you listen to your podcasts. And it includes a number of those folks that will be joining Brad next week at this event. So again, please head over to bradonishi.com slash nationalism to register and use code SWAG, S-W-A-G 25 for 25% off in-person and virtual tickets. All right, everyone, let's get into it. Hello and welcome to Exvangelical. My guest today is Reverend Angela Denker. She is the author of the book Red State Christians, Understanding the Voters Who Elected Donald Trump, which has been re-released with an update. Angela has been on the show before. Welcome back, Angela. Thanks. Glad to be here. Thanks for coming on. I'm happy to talk to you again. We're recording this a, a couple of days after the 2022 midterms and very curious to talk to you about every, the sort of developments we've seen over the last couple of years and even over the last couple of days. But before we get into that, I'd like to talk about your book and if you could just summarize what your book was initially about. It was initially published in 2019 and why you felt it necessary to update the book and what those updates entail. Yeah. Well, like you said, it first came out August 2019. I did the bulk of the research. I spent 2018 traveling across the country and researching Christian nationalism, researching Christian voters in red states and red counties. And, you know, here we are, we're sitting here a couple of days after J.D. Vance got elected to the U.S. Senate with big support from Trump. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting, the connection to my book is that Hillbilly Elegy had just come out when I was getting my book contract and the publisher. So they actually pitched this idea to me to write this book. And they said, at the time, they said, oh, we're viewing this as the Christian version of Hillbilly Elegy, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> which is like super cringy now. And, you know, just shows how much everything has changed in these past four or five years. And so a big shift 
too, from, you know, that initial focus. And again, the book does really, the first chapter centers on Christian nationalism, the second chapter is on abortion, the third chapter is on guns. So many of the same consistent themes that we continue to see in the movement of Trumpism and right-wing conservative evangelical Christianity, but a big shift. So I released the updated ed edition just this past August, and you can even see the shift in the subtitle. So initially, as you said, it was understanding the voters who elected Donald Trump, which frankly, I hated that subtitle <laughs> because I think it lent itself to this idea that here I am, this expert who's going to come in and tell you how to understand people. And it's almost like this, you know, parachute effect that you see in national media. We're going to go to a you know, a cafe in rural Iowa and talk to Trump voters. And I just, I hate that kind of thing. And so my, instead of understanding, I had wanted meat because I think especially at that point in 2019, there still was really no understanding. I mean, we're still, you know, breaking down how to understand this movement. And I don't think my book was necessarily intended as understanding. It was more about meeting and also beginning to unpack some of these trends that we continue to see in politics and in American Christian life. But the new subtitle is A Journey to White Christian Nationalism and the Wreckage It Leaves Behind and really mm. picks up on how this movement of right-wing Christianity has been shaped and has influenced our experience as Americans of covid of George Floyd's murder, which happened just a few miles from my home, and the January 6th insurrection. So that's kind of the focus of the new content for the 2022 edition, as well as my own personal experience, both in my rural church and within my own family, of the ways that Trumpism continues to create a lot of wreckage in people's lives and Christian nationalism as well. Absolutely. And in addition to everything you just said, then it seems like within even within title change, it signifies what has changed since then, which is now we refer to it commonly as white Christian nationalism or just Christian nationalism. Was that something that, I mean, was that something that while you were working on this updated edition, more cognizant of was that, wow, this thing that you did have in your first chapter was specifically about it. But by the time it reached the market, by the time the 2020 elections came, the quickly followed by the insurrection, that's when Christian nationalism and the more specific white Christian nationalism started to really enter at least the media lexicon. So how did you perceive that sort of shift as you were updating the book, as you were positioning it for essentially the book market is a market. So like... But at the same time, like all of those things, the way in which media talks about these phenomenons that are very personal, but also, and also very significant. How did you experience that? Yeah, I think, you know, it's been mixed. I was, I've been encouraged, you know, especially the work of Kristen Dumay and Jesus and John Wayne and Andrew mm -hmm. Whitehead, Sam Perry and Taking Back America for God. You know, they were some of the first people that I spoke with, even about my book, you know, way back in 2018. So to see their work, Kristen, from that historical perspective, and Andrew and Sam from that sociological perspective, I think it's been really important to have that work on a national media stage, in a sense. Where I've been disappointed is, I think, still national media and I say this as someone who began my career in journalism, in newspapers, I have a degree in journalism. 
there's this sense that Christians are like zoo animals <laughs> and religious people in general are like zoo animals. And there's this sense that it's weird and it's odd. And how are we going to study them? And there's really a lack of depth when it comes to the theological piece of Christian nationalism. And I think that's a piece that you've really covered in your work and a piece that's really important to me as a trained theologian. And I just think you can't understand Christian nationalism without understanding how American Christians have been taught to view God and what kind of God American Christians believe in. And so that for me has been the missing piece in coverage of Christian nationalism. And I think that's why, unfortunately, it seems like it's going to just become kind of one of those, another one of those wedge terms and people are going to feel a certain way about it based on their partisan alignment. And it's not going to open too many new doors for understanding. Maybe some, I mean, I've certainly seen that with Kristen's work and Andrew Sam's work and some with my work, but that's been my disappointment. You know, when I initially released the book, I had a naive hopefulness that, you know, it could be read by conservatives and it's just been really hard to break through that. Maybe we're seeing some of that sunlight breaking through with yesterday's election results, Tuesday's election results. Yeah. Yeah. I echo that sentiment, you know, as far as not knowing I'm very unclear sometimes about whether it's valuable to extricate Christian nationalism as a term from other aspects of religious life. Is it valuable to to say that this is a sociological type term and use it in that context? Or is there or is it better to say, you know, this is this exists and is expressed within particular traditions? And I'm I that's just some a sort of discomfort that I can't I haven't been able to resolve really. I know in a recent discussion between Diana Butler Bass and Julia Ingersoll, uh in, Julia Ingersoll is they wrote the book on Christian Reconstruction, which is very much the predecessor and one of the sources for much of what we call Christian nationalism. Right. And Ingersoll, she said, this is what we used to call evangelicals. Yes. And uh, and I think that's fair. <laughs> I think that's fair. You know, I'm fidgeting in my chair a little bit. But I mean, I think that's fair. And that is part of so many people's lives, whether it's part of their current life or the, you know, their upbringing. That's very hard to, it's not as easy to quantify. It's not as easy to I, to talk about. But I think there's something there too. <laughs> yeah. Yep. And on that note, you you have you also do have a you have a role in a local congregation. In addition to the work that you've done in writing this book and researching it and all of that, you also serve in a local congregation. And I'm certain that has led to far more concrete examples of the ways in which these things play out in congregational life or in the lives of your individual, those that attend at your congregation or parish. Is there anything and I don't intend to put you in on the spot where you'd want to share something that would make you uncomfortable. But even on a broad level, have these issues, as they've continued to develop within American society, have they shown up in, in your own church life? Yeah, absolutely. And this is another thing I don't think that we talk about enough. You know, we'll see how this shows up among pastors who are really vocally supporting Christian nationalism. But I don't think there's enough conversation about how, you know, average pastors are dealing with this, particularly like you never hear from women pastors. You rarely 
rarely hear from mainline pastors in the media. And I have led this life that has been, you know, challenging and also really rewarding over the last three years. I'm coming up on three years of service as a solo pastor called to a congregation in rural Minnesota. So I live in Southwest Minneapolis, but I drive an hour west to serve a church primarily made up of lots of farmers, some school teachers, factory workers in a really small town that has, you know, a few churches and a bar. And that's about it at this point in a baseball field. And I think there's a perception, you know, I get a lot of comments, particularly like from journalists or from people, national media people, like they don't understand how I can have written this book and then also be serving in this context. Because there's this general idea that if you are vocal about what's happening in American Christianity, that you cannot also continue to live and work among people who are, you know, I my town's full of Trump flags, Trump signs. There's the most recent signs now have said, you know, fix 2020 first before going to the 2022 election. Oh my, um, I haven't seen that. <laughs> oh, you're missing out. I've got, you know, I've had confirmation students who during COVID were really convinced that if they got the vaccine, they were going to have, you know, a chip put into their bodies. I had, you know, in this past election cycle, one of my church members who's an awesome guy, he just got elected as county attorney in a, you know, very conservative area. And, you know, it was a nonpartisan role, but coming from a conservative legal background. And this is somebody who I've baptized, you know, his kids. So I think that's what get mi gets missed a lot of times is that many of us, and I'm sure this is true for many of the people listening or watching this, is we have these ongoing relationships that we're trying to navigate in the midst of a really pernicious lie that's being purported about the gospel, that the point of American Christianity is to amass power and money and influence. And there's a lot of people who have come to believe in that as the gospel and support politicians who have supported that in a Supreme Court that has supported that. And yet, like we still have these ongoing family relationships that many of us are trying to navigate while also speaking out in resistance to this, what I would call perversion of the gospel. So I, yeah, I mean, I've continued to pastor there and we've continued to exist together and try to learn from each other. And I've learned a lot about role life and they've learned things about Minneapolis. You know, I had one of my kids who was really surprised that like my kids get to go on a lake in school in <laughs> Minneapolis because he was thinking of it as, you know, downtown and buildings. So I think it's been really vital work. And it's, it's that kind of work that's not often rewarded and work that's really tough and misunderstood, but it's been really critical to my work as a writer and as somebody who wants to talk about this. Stuff. Yeah, I think you, the way in which you describe that, I think it gets to the point about how even though the media, that our lives are very mediated, especially uh, especially during the during the lockdown right. and the most 2020 part of the pandemic, it is still ongoing. Uh, right, there's right. still COVID-19 remains remains a public health crisis. But during that period when there were significantly more people sheltering in place and taking those precautions, all of our life was mediated. But at the same time, we, even though our media ecosystems are very polarized, the local life that we have 
is not necessarily as cleanly split apart or delineated as those sorts of things are. And that leads to complex relationships that that are certainly not easy to navigate at times, but is part of uh, local life. So thank you for sharing what you did with regard to that. One of the one of the other pieces that I'm curious about as someone who is serving in a in a local capacity is the way in which language itself can be this thing that that might be hard to hard to work through, which is really just that the words are very simple, but then the concepts that re- they represent can be pretty complex with regards to Christian nationalism. It's very, you know, a vectionary position maybe. What's wrong with being proud of either being a Christian or being proud of your nation or both? Is that something that, that you've run into that that feels different or distinct from when you're engaging this sort of thing from your perspective as a writer versus your perspective as a pastor? Yeah, you know, I think a lot as a pastor about, yeah, maybe this is a crude way to talk about it, but there's, you know, you think about your, you have a certain relational sort of account with your congregation and you build that up in, you know, pastoral care moments, you build that up in building trust and things like baptisms, funerals, weddings. And sometimes then you withdraw from that account when you share a hard truth or a prophetic word, which I did after the insurrection, speaking about the violence that was really attributed to people who were saying they were there because of their faith, the violent rhetoric that was a part of that and how I felt, you know, as somebody, and I'm sure you've experienced this too, as somebody who's had somewhat of a public platform on combating Christian nationalism, I've had my share of nasty threats, emails, comments, you know, and having been the recipient of that and then seeing the ways that that bubbled up in violence, not only in January 6th, but we just saw it recently with the attack on Nancy Pelosi's husband. I talked to my congregation about like, you know me, you trust me. We've been through a lot together and I was threatened by what happened here. It's not just threatening to like nameless, faceless liberals that you don't like. Like this affected me. And this is a threatening, violent movement that has deep roots in Christianity. You know, I always Mm want to make the case that this goes back, you know, to the crusades. It goes back to the Tower of Babel. It goes back to this desire of human power and influence and money. But yeah, so I've, you know, had to draw some times from that and that's been costly. I've had people leave the church, but it's also really been forged on honesty, on relationship and on just integrity, I think. And I think that there are still a lot of people who value integrity and you kind of have to dig past, um, dig past the surface anger, dig past the surface, like reaction to terms that haven't been explained or understood but yeah it's been it's also been hard right it's been really hard are you all right to pivot a little bit towards what's been going on in the last couple days or is there anything else that that we could really touch on there that because i there's so much to talk about with regards to how well you know how the last couple of years have come about prior to this election season you know we had Marjorie Taylor Greene selling shirts that said proud Christian nationalist. Right. I mean, people, some of those people, you know, who, 
who do it for the attention, for the clout, to dunk on liberals, to gin up support from people that support these beliefs. Some of this is a, a lot of people that pay attention to these things are concerned about the extreme level of this rhetoric and what it can lead to and what it can justify, especially post post J6. This was this. It happened once, so it could happen again. So, what even before we reach before you reach what came about on election night, midterm election night, I should say, not November twenty sixteen, but November twenty twenty two. What did you see? What were some concerns that you had about? Let's start with politicians, and then maybe we can also talk about other religious leaders or other public figures. But let's start with politicians who were openly embracing or signaling to these Christian nationalist type positions. Yeah, I mean, I was I was I had like a pit in my stomach, you know, approaching Tuesday and was very concerned and not on a partisan level like, oh, no, you know, but really just on a level of the kind of rhetoric that was flying around out there was so unmoored from reality. And was so based in things that were just so ridiculous in some cases, you know, these conspiracy theories that have been floating around out there. And the total loss for me, you know, both as a journalist and as a pastor, I'm really concerned about friendship of the truth and that there's some sense in which we can agree as human beings that there are some things that are true and some things that aren't. And it was really interesting going into the midterms that what I said to a lot of other pastors and people that I was talking with is that there's been this flip in Christianity. And I've experienced it as a female pastor. You know, when I first started out as a woman pastor in conservative contexts, I would get and still continue to get, you know, a lot of feedback that suggests because I'm a woman, I am betraying the true gospel. Or, you know, there used to be a lot of talk about how the churches that I pastored were not Bible-based, quote unquote, which mostly means, you know, we say it's okay for gay people to be gay. <laughs> and we say it's okay for LGBTQ people to lead as pastors in the church. And we say it's okay for women to preach. And so there was this sense that like conservative Christians, they were the ones who had the truth. But what we saw, I think in 2022 is that got flipped. And, um, there was instead now it was conservatives who were really saying, well, there is no way to really know the truth. And I think that came out of Trump, that came out of this nihilistic campaign of you can't trust anybody, so why don't you go with me and I'm going to help us win. And so I think conservative Christians in kind of a public way said, you know what, truth is no longer important to us, which in a good way, I think, opens the door for Christians with a more pro progressive perspective to go back and say, this is what we believe is the gospel truth. This is what truth is important to us. And so that was one of the things that I saw shaping 2022, but it was also one of the things that was making me so worried because I was concerned that there was this broad swath of Americans who just had totally abandoned any sense of searching for truth in favor of just raw, hard power. Yeah. Yeah. That is, I mean, that is certainly true as far as, as far as like the, this, this notion of, of, of what you said of abandoning truth or not 
being concerned with it. I do think of like the sort of Carrie Lake, I believe was an example that was, that was highlighted. And I wish I could remember the source. I can't remember it off the top of my head right now. I apologize. However, they, one of the, one of the quotes of hers was that, that even though she can't provide any evidence whatsoever with regard to the results of the 2020 election, not being in favor of Biden, it's just a feeling. And it's just a, it's just a feeling. And it is certainly, you know, very much a leads to a type of cognitive dissonance for folks who may come from a conservative place that may have been taught apologetics or things like that. <laughs> That's that, you know, this evident <laughs> Josh McDowell's evidence demands a verdict, right? And so it's where's the evidence, you know? Right. And not, that's not provided because it's all going on vibes, you know, just right. fas- just fascist vibes. That's we're that's in really a crazy place. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, though it's inter- that is interesting to think of it as an opportunity for progressive faith groups or individuals to <laughs> to push back on that and say, well, we have a shared re- like we do have have to live in the, some shared reality, and that includes believing in our elections. And so much of what the Trump administration made clear was how much runs on norms, <laughs> and when they're flouted, well we get to where we are now. So, yeah. Well, I keep thinking about this sense that movements that are built on really mistrust of one another and movements that are built upon hatred for others, ultimately, they end up being movements that are cannibalistic. And so I just feel like maybe we're starting to get to a place where some of this, you know, call it maybe neo-fascist movement in America, Christian nationalist movement in America, some of the people within that movement are starting to cannibalize one another when it all starts to break in and fall apart on the inside. And I think the danger for the U.S. has been, is there still enough left standing when a lot of this crumbles to dust? You know, it's not good for the U.S. to have a totally non-functional major political party. That's not in anybody's interest. And so I think these next few months and years ahead are really going to be interesting to watch what happens with the Republican Party. And also, you know, for American Christianity, again, I just think that I keep thinking about even when I first started doing my research on Christian nationalism, that one of the Southern Baptist pastors who I talked to said that they had so strongly taught love of America and patriotism and Christian nationalism in their churches that it had so powerfully drowned out the gospel that when people were confronted with, you know, this is actually not the gospel. Jesus wasn't American. Jesus was a brown Middle Eastern Jewish man. That what happened is that people lost their faith. They didn't let go of their political beliefs, they lost their faith. And I think there's been some statistics that have showed that this is starting to happen in the U.S. where, you know, we end up having a movement that calls itself Christian, but the bedrocks of that movement have just come so far away from Jesus or the Bible that it's really, you know, the word Christian has become such a misnomer uh, that means nothing. It's almost become meaningless other than it's a right-wing political term. So I think that's, yeah, go ahead. Oh, I was just, 
I just wanted to loop back to what you said as far as people losing their faith. Do you mean they lose that in order to maintain a conservative political or social view? Is that what you mean? Yeah, or I think, you know, there's... Yeah, I know that term, losing your faith. Like, what is well, that? I, I, yeah, the, the reason why I wanted... Well, I just wanted to make sure I was understanding you because so much of what are admittedly conversations even that I have and that others in this sort of online space tend to have is that people, when they lose their faith, it's not, uh, many times it's to become either moderate or progressive or something like that, especially when you come from a conservative place. Generally, if you come from a conservative if you come from a conservative religion or were born or raised in it, and then you can maintain a conservative religion and conservative politics, there, there's not as much dissonance there. That's why I w- that's what I was was hoping to talk about a little bit more and make sure I had that correct. Yeah, I think that I think that is starting to change and be challenged. This sense that that it's actually going to be conservative politics that are going to really threaten people's ability to you know, be faithful and what's going to be so much stronger. And I think maybe people, you know, who have been brought up and even my own, you know, touches of, I had a mixed upbringing between more of a progressive mainline church and also experiences with more evangelical faith groups and youth groups and things like that. But I think that, you know, there's been so much shaming too. There's been so much shaming of people who have rejected evangelicalism or who have rejected the social policies of evangelicalism and have been told, you know, well, now you, you've lost God, you've lost heaven. You've, and I just think that's been so inaccurate, you know, and it, that's been a shaming tool. That's really, that's really been wrong. And I think what's actually more accurate is that the people who have gone headlong into this Christian nationalist sense they're the ones who have really lost Jesus. You know, when your own when your only conception of Jesus is a white American warrior who is gonna, you know, be stomping around in his cowboy boots and, you know, swearing and abusing women and, you know, being, you know, sharing hateful language, that's not much of a faith. I really think, and I've been calling upon some of my fellow, you know, mainline pastors to say, to begin pushing back on that and say, for so many years, you guys, conservative pastors came to us and said, we were abandoning the gospel. We were abandoning the Bible. We were the ones who were pushing this false Christianity. It's you. You're the ones who've abandoned the gospel. You're the ones who've abandoned the Bible. You're the ones who have twisted the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And I just think there's some time to like quit playing defense and, you know, go on the offensive a little bit. <laughs> Maybe that's the old sports writer in me. But. <laughs> Yeah, though that is, I mean, y- you are correct in that conservative pastors, as far as when even in ecumenical spaces or in right. the more public sphere, right. are always swift to con- to condemn or distance themselves from more mainline or progressive expressions of Christianity. They they certainly just write them off. But then the it's been interesting when looking at the history of religion in America and the public sphere or in in the way who has the loudest voice in media or other aspects of public life. So much space has been ceded by nice. progressive voices since the nineteen sixties. I mean, that it's it for a lot of people's entire lives, including mine, it's always been 
the dominant voice is the conservative voice. And I, it is encouraging to see that that those spaces and those concerns are not necessarily just being conceded, C, conceded, C-E-D, not E-D, not E-I-T-E-D. in the public sphere and in that public conversation because it is valuable to have that discussion i have my own sort of beliefs that that many like conservatives isolated themselves for a really long time and then whenever they showed up they were hostile so there's lots of reasons that contributed to that but especially in this current political climate it can't be given Well, and I just think it's such a shame, you know, from a journalism perspective, how much of that ground has been seeded by major media outlets. You know, if we look at the New York Times religion columnists, that both of them, you know, a lot of them come from either conservative Catholicism or they come from denominations that are non-affirming of LGBTQ people that are, you know, very limited in how they embrace women's rights. And that's, you know, the liberal New York Times And so Mm -hmm. I think, again, when we're talking about language, we're talking about news media, there's really reasons to push back on what do some of these labels really mean when we have a country when news media outlets are owned by, in a lot of cases, billionaires. And if you're somebody who has extreme wealth in this country, even if you have some liberal social ideas, you are beholden ultimately to the gospel of capitalism. So I just think that there's, there's a lot to be suspicious of. There's a lot to push back on. And there's... I'm just tired of the shaming that's been done from conservative Christianity. I'm tired of the shaming that's been done from the pro-life movement. And I think what we saw in the midterms is Americans are tired of that, too. What do you think there is that we can glean from the success or failure of a lot of these very staunch, proud Christian nationalist type politicians that, that ran on these sort of platforms that were vocal about it? The what can we glean from the fact that there was no red wave, there was no red tsunami? I mean, things things did not shift as considerably as they historically have in in the first term for a first term president. Yeah, I was emailing with a former newspaper editor of mine this morning about how wrong, you know, a lot of the national media outlets were about what was going to happen here. And what he was saying, and I really agree with, is that for a lot of, you know, mainstream national media organizations, again, they have been so defensive when it comes to the criticism that they heard from, oh, you know, you're a liberal or you are you know, enemy of the people, things that were brought up during Trump's presidency. So they've been so defensive and their most typical response to that kind of criticism is, you know, maybe they're going to bring in some Republican columnists, maybe they're going to just bend over backwards to try to seem like they're, you know, being nonpartisan, even though by nature, if you're a journalist and you think people should have a lot of information, that's kind of a progressive, you know, stance to come at, which so what my editor was saying is that sort of cowardice of major national news media has led to, you know, we've got horse race coverage of politics, rather than really an in-depth discussion of the candidates and the issues we've instead got you know, I think sports writers should stick to the horse right horse race coverage. And <laughs> political writers should focus on you know writing about the actual issues that are going mm-hmm. on because they they're not very good at covering horse races. They usually end up wrong. But so then, what again? What we have is so we have this kind of created narrative that again was wrong, and then we wake up and think, okay, well, what did 
the American people actually say in this midterm election. And I'm reminded of last night, we had a church council meeting and one of my, you know, farmers, just a real like kind of solid, hardworking guy. He, you know, Trump voter, he made some comment at the end of the meeting. He was just like, well, after those elections, he told me about this devotion he'd read. And he just kind of said, it basically said to me, you know, we're done. And maybe I'm reading into this, but I think in some sense, what we saw in the midterm elections is that a lot of voters were done with the chaos, you know, the chaos of Trumpism, the chaos of, you know, here in Minnesota, we actually had a pretty solid Democratic sweep of statewide races. And when I was watching the Republican candidates, you know, their final speech kind of for governor and lieutenant governor, just the type of stuff they were saying about what's happening in Minnesota, how negative it was, how pessimistic, even though, you know, people are having a lot of real financial struggles due to inflation. I don't think people, I think what we saw in the midterms is people were kind of done with the chaos, done with the controversy, done with the conspiracy, and want some type of return to a functional political system. Whether that's going to happen or not, you know, we'll see. But I think, you know, we also saw that with the ultimate embrace of Biden in the ways that Biden continues to be written off and then continues to see there is an appetite for the type of the type of politics and type of leadership that Joe Biden has represented. Right. Just a no malarkey. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> Honestly, I think he should lean into no malarkey and just lean into the dad granddad joke that is <laughs> and just 100%. you know have a functioning government yeah because that's because having and so much of so much was done under the trump administration that just undercut how governance should work and went against everything to such a degree just out of either abject loyalty or whatever else that it's uh, and i think that is certainly a sentiment that a lot of I think you're right that we do see this at play in the fact that this is a bit of maintaining the status quo, at least for a little bit, instead of it just always right. flipping back and forth every two to four years or both. And it just being chaos, the pandemic being what it was and still feeling so many people still feeling as if they're still recovering from that experience. Yeah. Is, uh, yeah, that I'm, sh I'm sure that all led into it. What about Dobbs? And that also appears to be a major, uh, a major motivator for women and those who can give birth because, and there have been many anecdotes and I'm sure there will continue to be more, um, more studies and reporting on how Dobbs became a motivator, even for those who have historically voted for conservatives. But I don't want to overlook Dobbs as a major motivator for this particular midterm. Absolutely. Yes. And that is hugely important. And I think in some ways it's another indictment of the source, the sense of privilege and isolation that many in the political class or the news media live in that there were so many reports coming out saying, oh, the Democrats need to focus on the economy. They shouldn't talk about, about abortion. People are going to vote based on abortion. Well, hello. Like, I'm a person with a uterus. I've had two children. I'm of childbearing age. This is existential, existential for women 
in this country to be able to have access to reproductive health care. And I think the extent to which that was minimized in the lead up to the coverage of these elections just reflects the extent to which so many Americans fail to view women as people <laughs> and fail to, you know, not only women, but, you know, people who can have babies, people who are capable of having children as just being so dehumanized in this country for so long. And certainly conservative Christians have really led the charge on that. But I think these elections do show that, you know, people are not going to stand for this ongoing dehumanization of childbearing people. And there's a right to bodily autonomy. There's a right to freedom. And there's a dignity that should be granted to every single human life in this country. I think the Black Lives Matter movement has done a lot to open that conversation. And I think it's continuing to be needing addressed and acknowledged. And nationally, there certainly wasn't, it It, it certainly felt like we nationally avoided some of that chaos and avoided the political party that has presented that chaos for much of the last several years in particular did not gain as much ground as was forecasted or expected by lots of people. Maybe even most people, there was just this assumption that it was going to be pretty pretty definitive and it wasn't but there were also still states that that did maintain that can that more republican control or what have you and i know we we've sort the way we've talked has been we haven't always name checked the two parties at play here but that but we know what they are that being said with the with the historic voter suppression in some parts of the country as well as a number of other factors that this was not a red wave and it wasn't a blue wave so how do you envision the next few years? Are you even even thinking in those terms yet as far as how, how things might develop or whether whether just as individuals and as local leaders or people that, that pay attention to these things? Should we just remain as, as vigilant as we can and carry forward those same attitudes? Or do you think there's a little bit of a little bit of room to feel a, a sense of encouragement or motivation to, to keep pressing on these things? I mean, I think if there's any place where we can gain some encouragement or hope, we got to take it. We're going to get beat up, you know, as sure. yeah. soon as we look around the bend. So I'm certainly like telling myself to take whatever opportunity I can for sources and stories of hope. I also, you know, looking at alongside the story of Joe Biden and his kind of story of personal tragedy, I think this story of Fetterman in Pennsylvania is an important story to look at. You know, this is a person who comes from a decidedly different background, a decidedly different way of presenting himself than many political candidates. This, I saw a tweet that said Fetterman is like if a union was a person. (laughs) (laughs) I just love that because it's been a long time that we really in America have honored labor, whether it's teachers, whether it's culinary workers, you know, whether it's coal miners, factory workers, you know, it's been a really long time since we have said, set labor workers as people whom we should look to in America to emulate and to honor. It's instead been founder or the tech billionaire or the mm. you know, wonder kid, the venture capitalist, the influencer, whatever. So I look at this story of Betterman and even 
you know, the fact that he then had a stroke and his difficulty on the debate stage and his very woundedness. I think it's an important story, you know, Mm -hmm. that he was embraced, that he was put on this big stage and he didn't necessarily change. I'm not saying he's a perfect politician or a perfect man, but I think it's a story to really look to when the Democratic Party looks towards, you know, what kind of states do we want to put forth? Because I think you see saw in contrast to Fetterman, you saw both in the Virginia gubernatorial election and in the Florida gubernatorial election. I heard a pundit say the other day that, you know, in Florida for governor, the Democrats basically nominated a corpse. <laughs> oh, no. And there's been this... <laughs> Like conventional wisdom that we're going to put the old white guy who has been, you know, a former kind of moderate, you know, and has been on the insider of the party. We're going to put that person forward as the state choice. And I think it's important to, to distinguish between where that kind of strategy failed and Joe Biden succeeded. Like what did Joe, because Joe Biden's also the old white guy, what's different about him? And then also what's different about somebody like Fetterman? And so again, I think there's kind of that need to thread the needle between not playing it safe, going on the offensive, being really clear about the kind of policies that Democrats see for all of America, but also, you know, in critiquing the pro-life movement and talking about what would it really like to look like to have an ethic of life from a progressive point of view when it comes to capital punishment, when it comes to poverty, when it comes to children, when it comes to gun violence, when it comes to gun rights, all those things, you know, thread that needle between Supporting labor, looking towards rural communities that Democrats have ignored for a long time, but also being really clear about policies and being proud of policies rather than backing away from them and just trying to chart this, well, we're not them, of course. Yeah. Yeah. Be proud of your accomplishments and actually promote them. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) Yeah. I, that comment about your comment about how certain certain communities, especially rural communities, feel a bit of distance from especially the Democratic Party, at least within the last several, I would probably say decades. There is a a lot of, but there is a lot of identity that goes into living in a rural area or a suburban area or an urban area. But But maybe the fact that if Democrats in particular could talk about the ways in which their policies that they implement favor and help people in rural areas, then that could help make make the voters' decision be a little more informed and not primarily based on other aspects of identity politics. That's a nice way to put it. Yeah, just be, I mean, yeah, because it, because a lot of federal policies do benefit farmers and mm-hmm. things like that. And mm-hmm. when it comes down to it, a lot of times it, the party they vote for is not the one that is in favor of those things. So it is certainly an interesting, interesting manifestation, I think, in American politics and public life. That there is one that there is one party that often that often appeals to that rural person. He is someone from a small town and and yeah. and as with relatives from an even smaller town, you know? Um, yeah. Great. I think Democrats left a vacuum and Republicans really stepped into it and filled it with you know, racist language and filled it with anger and hatred and grievance. And, you know, I think there's a reason to re-engage. And I think there are people in those communities 
that need some encouragement, that need their vital tools of folks who are still working in those communities, whether it's teachers or union reps or, you know, they just need a little encouragement from national Democrats. So you sit in this interesting position where you're present in, in an urban area and you're also present in a rural area. You have your pastoral role, you have writer's role. What are looking just in consideration of all of these different things that 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 you're exposed to and experience and participate in what from your vantage point are some things that that you think will continue to have the most importance and the most impact when folks are trying to to use Whitehead and Perry's terminology reject or resist Christian nationalist ideology or policy within their local church or within their local governments or in their home. You know, these things seek to have dominion over our entire lives. And that's why there are so many people pushing up against it. But you are in a position where you have a a lot of different perspectives into this. And I'm just curious what you think is one of, are some of the most impactful ways that people can, if they are seeking to resist or reject or, or, you know, to use a little bit of conflict language, like fight against these things. Is it, does your mind go to relationships or to media or to all of the above? What sort of springs to mind for you? I think there's, there's a great desire, especially when I talk to people who have been wanting to be organizers in more rural communities or more conservative communities. And, you know, for myself too, to be honest, there's this desire for making the big change or the quick change. And I think, you know, what I'm really hearing instead is this call to, to dig in and stay where you are. And I think that's why, um, you know, from a denominational perspective, I think mainline denominations need to be really attentive to supporting their rural pastors and their mm. pastors who are in conservative contexts because they're doing really vital work, you know, just to have that alternative to the Christian nationalist congregation, to have that alternative of a place that says, we're going to do community meals, we're going to do local aid, you know, we're going to provide drives for caring for people in need. We're going to have the Christmas Eve service. We're going to have the Easter service. We're going to have youth education classes. Just that an alternative exists in some of these communities. I think it's the same when it goes for media. You know, media outlets abandon local news broadly. And so there's no alternative now to the steady stream of conspiracy theories and right-wing news. I think it's Mm -hmm. the same for, you know, it's the same for public school teachers, because in some of these communities, a majority of kids are starting to attend schools that are now espousing Christian nationalism, teaching Christian nationalism. So I think if you're a person like me, who's kind of been working in this spot for a while, and a lot of times feeling like, ugh, (laughs) there's there's this call to, to stay. And that's why I say, I really think mainline denominations need to provide support to their local rural pastors. I think public school districts, state governments need to really provide support to public school teachers ongoing battle both here in Minneapolis and in urban district in our outstate districts here in Minnesota. Yeah. And so, you know, local news, I just think reminding people that these alternatives exist, that you don't have to, if you're going to leave the evangelical megachurch 
that there are alternatives. I think that is really important. And to be proud of that alternative, even if like your church is struggling to get by and like my church, we're like, "Mm, do we need to, you know, start publishing the budget numbers in the bulletin? Like, are we going to make it? That's a reality. And that's caused a lot of shame and silence from people from, you know, less moneyed organizations, many of which are less conservative. But I think there's a need to stay where you are, be proud of who you are and where you are, and just kind of keep digging in. And to call back to what you said about your church council member, this notion of, you know, we're done. Does that signal to you that that this is a period where people may be more open to changing their mind? I mean, because that's not at the sort of root of this show is um, it's my curiosity about how and why people change their minds and then change their eventually in many ways leads to very significant changes in their lives and do you see that as like a as a signal that we we may be entering a point where people are you know we're still in a very polarized place you know elon musk is doing no favors for twitter in the regard in that regard but are you seeing that sort of maybe possibly playing out, you know, of people being open to all these alternatives? Well, I'm like so hesitant to say it because I have been <laughs> overly optimistic in the past. You know, I thought after 2016, people would be like, oh my gosh, what have we done? Turn around, abort. No, that didn't happen. I thought after 2020, we're starting to see, okay, yeah, no, that didn't happen. And then speaking about, you know, people that I'm close to, in addition to just national trends of people embracing Christian nationalism, conspiracy theories, QAnon. So I say with great trepidation that I think maybe, I think it's going to be a one by one. It's going to be a trickle of people. And what I keep going back to is really the wisdom of the 12 steps and the wisdom of that idea of recovery and addiction recovery. You know, it's been an important part of, you know, my family's experience. So I often turn to that wisdom of, you know, you can't kind of force somebody to Mm -hmm. decide it's time for me to make a change in my life. What you can do, and I just said this to a group of real pastors earlier this week, what we can do is be ready and be there when they're ready to make that change. So I think the task for you know, people like you and I, the task for congregations, the task for community organizations is to be there and be ready to receive people (laughs) when they're going to change their minds. And that's really hard work, but it is really powerful. And in the midst of it, I'm just going to keep like praying the serenity prayer. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I think that's, I think that's a wise position to, to take not only because you know, predicting the future is a as a fool's errand. You know, that's as yeah. You never know which way even one person is gonna change, let alone <laughs> entire swaths of people. But nonetheless, you know, being there for that period when or if some opens up a little bit to looking at things differently, then that's encouraging. And it's good to be that resource wherever you're wherever that places you. So yeah. Yeah. Any sort of final thoughts with regards to where what we've seen over the last few days and where your attention is being drawn to now. Yeah, I think I'm going to, you know, be continuing to watch and see where everything does shake out with these midterm elections. And I think as far as 
you know, the work in the church and the ongoing work of combating Christian nationalism. I think this is, as much as I kind of sometimes wish it wasn't this way, I think this is going to be, you know, my life's work, I guess, is, you know, continuing to champion a gospel that resides in the cross and does not reside in this triumphalism, does not reside in in money and in power. And sometimes that's not a whole lot of fun. So I got to keep looking for other places to find fun in my life. Um, true. I do think that, you know, this is really critical work. And it's also work that, you know, we should be proud of, that you should be proud of, that people listening to this should be proud of. And to not buy into this sense of shame that maybe this kind of work isn't bringing the kind of financial success or esteem that, you know, a lot of people who have championed Christian nationalism have gotten, mm-hmm. um, you know, to see the Amazon book sale success of some of these <laughs> books. is just, oh dear. Yeah. Very sobering. But, you know, there's, there needs to be a sense of pride in this work. And I hope that people can start to feel that. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. I mean, whether you're doing this sort of thing within the context of within the context of staying in a religious tradition or if it leads you out of it, it's a valuable work. So, Angela, thank you very much for joining me to have this lovely and sort of meandering conversation that <laughs> touched on a lot of different things and you know, veered into everything that's that this that this show likes to do religion politics all of it all at once where can people find your book where can they find anything else you want to mention i know you have a you've started a substack so anything else you want to plug here yeah i'm all in on substack at the moment but it's been a nice community <laughs> and i write three times a week so angeladinker.substack.com it's called i'm listening and the book red snake christians I always point people towards Bookshop. It's a better place for authors and for readers than Amazon. And yeah, Twitter seems to be imploding, which might be a good thing, but we'll see. Yeah, who knows? <laughs> who knows? I mean, yeah. I'm on there for now. I'm not verified. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Me neither. Me neither. <laughs> not verified. So it's all good. <laughs> well, Angela, thank you very much for joining me. And we'll talk soon. All right. Thanks, Blake. Hello and welcome to Exvangelical. My guest today is Reverend Angela Denker. She is the author of the book Red State Christians, Understanding the Voters Who Elected Donald Trump, which has been re-released with an update. Angela has been on the show before. Welcome back, Angela. Thanks. Glad to be here. Thanks for coming on. I'm happy to talk to you again. We're recording this a couple of days after the 2022 midterms. And very curious to talk to you about the sort of developments we've seen over the last couple of years and even over the last couple of days. But before we get into that, I'd like to 